The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, hello everyone. My name is Maria Stratman. I've been here this week for Gil. It's been a delightful week for me. Thank you all for being here. What we've been talking about this, this week is began from a place of how do we deal with self-criticism, self-blame. And so we've been spending the week thinking about what what gives rise to self-blame and self-criticism and how can we cultivate the state of blamelessness, the state where we are not turning against ourselves and constantly criticizing what we do at the same time as we are doing our practice and living our lives with all of the fullness that is inherent in that. So we talked about the effect of impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness of things because they arise and pass away, cannot be depended upon. We talked about judgment, the effect of judgment, and how judgment in comparison drives us to think something less of one thing over another, less of ourselves over another, less of ourselves over an ideal. We talked about doubt, the effect of doubt, that doubt undermines everything. It clouds everything. It's like walking in fog. And then we talked about forgiveness, which is really the act of not placing blame, not placing blame. Not condoning or excusing, but not placing blame. Not denying the effect of impermanence. And today, what I'd like to talk about, it turns out I have 15 minutes to talk about three different topics, which is clearly not going to happen. So I'm going to try to limit to to something that makes sense. When I was in my uh, late 20s, I went to work for an engineering firm. I was a chemist. I was also the only woman, uh, so I was the only chemist. I was the only woman in a, uh, outside of the, the accounting office and, the, and the, uh, the secretaries in the front office. And I, I was very confused about who I was and how I fit into this very heavily machinist environment that I existed in. And one day, a, a painter came up to me and he said, I am totally confused by you. So this was someone had just come in to paint. He said, some days you are, you're like this. You're, you're wearing a tie dye. You look like a, you look like a hippie. You have a t-shirt and jeans. And, and then some days you have a suit on. Who are you? And that has stuck with me. You know, who are you? Who are you is accumulation of all kinds of things, all kinds of aspects of yourself, all kinds of conditions that you find yourself in. Who am I is changing all the time, all the time. So I don't wear tight eyes as often as I used to, although I remain very attached to them, very enlivened by them the colors and the brightness, but I also have days when what seems appropriate is the closed-in quietness of just black, 
and that these colors reflect attitudes, changing pieces of myself, things that I need to see. And I've given up the habit of it needing to be a certain way. Because here's the thing. Our suffering depends not on having things the way we want them, but seeing things just as they are, just as they are, and not expecting them to be a certain way, even though it's very human to expect things to be a certain way, but to see when that's what's operating, seeing things clearly, seeing things clearly leads to non-blame leads to blamelessness. To see that suffering co-arises with with wanting things to be other than they are. I want more of this. I want less of this. I want you to be this way. I want this conditions to be that way. All of this wanting and not being happy unless what we want is realized. This, this is what leads to suffering. So how do we get to the point where we can really see things clearly, where we're not confused by our, the views that we bring into the moment or the attitude that we have when we get up in the morning or, or whether we're wearing a tie-dye shirt or, or a suit? Not to be confused by this, but to just see this is what's happening. This is what's happening. This is what's happening. Because our suffering depends on seeing things clearly, checking in with our intentions, and then taking the next step. That's all we have control over. It's just the next step. What operates from our intention. So if we have in our hearts ill will, irritation, anything that that creates tension and ugliness in in our lives, if that's what we're feeding, that's what's going to feed into this moment. That's the condition of this moment. That's what I can see. I can see my being angry with that person or being upset with that person and really wanting not to be. I really don't want to carry that into the future. I heard Gil say one time something that was just absolutely wonderful. He said, if you can't let go of the ill will, at least notice that you're a person who wants to let go of the ill will. This is a softening of the heart. I want to let go of it. I want to let go of it. Just that very act is shifting. The small shift is what makes a difference. That's what changes everything. That's what changes everything. I want to, but only if you want to. And that's the part about seeing clearly. That's the part about seeing clearly. Being in touch with our intentions means noticing what our intentions are. We have global intentions. I have the intention to be open-hearted. I'm not always open-hearted. But it is my overwhelming attention. And sometimes I will find myself, that person cut me off on the freeway. And I'll, I'll feel myself, feel the anger go into my body. I feel my 
my belly tightened. I feel the adrenaline rising in my body. And then I notice that all of that's happening. And I say, yes, but, yes, but. And then I see it isn't that this is a bad person. That's not what's happening. What's happening is I was startled. I was frightened by someone pulling in front of me in the freeway. Oh, that's what was happening. Now I go to, oh, I want to be safe. I want everyone to be safe. And suddenly I've gone from the ill will to may everybody on the freeway be safe. Including this driver who may not have had evil intentions when he cut me off. Maybe it was the last chance he had to get off the freeway. And he didn't know where he was. But I don't have to make those conditional statements about this person. I can just change what's happening in me. I can notice I don't want to go there and see that there's something else. That act of noticing I don't want to go there, I don't like this feeling, this is uncomfortable, allows us to see something else because we're not spending our time justifying that ill will. When we don't spend the time that way, we don't use the precious time that way, We have time in that moment to see something else, to see something else is happening, to give space for, I just wanted to be safe. We live in a world where bad stuff happens. Now we can say that if everybody was good, bad stuff wouldn't happen, but somehow I don't think so. Good and bad being comparative terms. What's good for me may not be good for you. And what's bad for me may not be bad for you. And there are gradations all along the spectrum. So what do we do when we discover a family member is hurting themselves? They're lost in alcoholism or drugs. And we care about them. And we see very clearly if they just did this, it would be so simple. Or we see for ourselves, why can't I do this? Why can't I stick to this plan? Why can't I always have in mind kind speech? Why is this happening? Because it happens. It doesn't have to have the meaning that someone is at fault, that someone is blameworthy. Nor does it mean that we excuse deliberate actions of ill will. That's not necessary. But it turns out that taking responsibility for everything in life being wonderful is a large part of suffering. And what can we do about that? What we can do is try to arrive at the place where we say, okay, I, my intention is to see clearly. So my route to this, at one time I felt uh, totally destroyed by how alienated I had become from my family over something that had happened, something that I did in response to something. And it was roundly, not everybody in my family condemned it. I have eight siblings, so there are lots of people with lots of voices. 
but I did something that I felt was essential, that was important for me and to not support bad behavior. And uh, I was not well liked in my family as a consequence of doing this. And I, I was plagued by that. I went off on a month long retreat at the forest refuge. And I told Joseph Goldstein, Oh, I have this really prob this great problem. You know, my family's so disappointed in me and, and I know I'm right. And, and he said, ah, I know what you can do. He seemed so excited. He knew just what to do. And he told me to do equanimity practice. So which I'd never really practiced before. So what I did was take a few phrases, a few standard phrases, and I will try to give you those phrases. Let me see. I'll put them here. I'll put them in chat. And if maybe, Kevin, can you put them or, or I'll... Can, yeah, can I can take care of that. Them, uh, in, in, uh, on YouTube. Okay, there are the phrases. All right, so they are, I am heir to my own karma. My suffering or lack of suffering depends on my own intentions and actions, not what others may wish or what I may wish. Despite what I may wish, things are as they are. May I see things just as they are. May I meet the arising and passing away of all things with equanimity and balance. So for this month-long retreat, every time I did walking meditation, I repeated these phrases in my head. That's thousands of times. I just repeated these phrases over and over again. I would occasionally insert that opening to the Dhammapada, which is easier for me to see the route of karma than to just refer to karma. So I don't want to get off on what does karma mean. But just that I am heir to my own attitudes and conditions that I create. Not what others may wish or what I may wish. And you can say this for others as well, despite what I may wish, things are as they are. Their happiness depends on their own intentions and actions, not what I may wish for them. And over time, after, after about two weeks, I came to the place where I realized my suffering is the result of my actions and my intentions. That's it. It comes home right there. Right there. My happiness is caused by my not accepting, by my being unwilling to see things just as they are. So I offer these phrases to you. They've been life-saving for me. They've allowed me to continue reevaluating my entry point to the moment for evaluating where am I now despite what I may wish things are as they are let me see them clearly let me see them right as they are
what's happening for me now? What's the energetic state of my body? How am I feeling? Where in my body am I feeling that? Rest in the here and now and don't get pulled off into the story. Don't get pulled off into the story. Just here and now. Just this. This is another uh, Jane Hirschfield poem from the same book that I seem to be hooked on this week. The book is Ledger. The name of the poem is You Go to Sleep in One Room and Wake in Another. You go to sleep in one room and wake in another. You go to sleep in one time and wake in another. Men land on the moon, viewed in blurred black and white and static on a big screen in Central Park, standing in darkness with others. Your grandfather did not see this. Your grandchildren will not see this. Soon now, 50 years back, Unemphatic, the wheelbarrowed stars hung above. Many days, like a nephew, resemble the one beforehand, but they are not the one beforehand. Each was singular, spendable, eaten with pepper and salt. You go deep in one person's bed and wake in another. Go sleep in one person's bed and wake in another. Your face after toweling changed from the face that was washed. You go to sleep in one world and wake in another. You who were not your life, nor were stranger to it, you who were not your name, your ribs, your skin, will go as a suitcase that takes inside it the room. Only after you know this can you know this. And a knocked glass that loses what has been spilled, you will know this. Only after you know this will you know this. My saying it, your hearing it doesn't do it. Once you know, then you know. And it's always with you. May we all see clearly. May we all see what is before us and what we are part of. To see it not as meaningful, but in the being of it. May you be in this moment and be free. Thank you for your time. Thank you, thank you. So I'm open to questions, comments. Hey, thank you, Maria. We've got uh, Layla from YouTube. She asked, um, I guess you had an earlier comment this week uh, related to around judgment lies all Buddhism. Uh-huh. Does that sound familiar? She said she she uh, was hoping that you'd elaborate on that. I don't quite remember saying that, but <laughs> but I might have because I don't plan everything I say. So... Uh, Apparently, I was thinking about Buddhism as being uh, as one of the four noble truths of of Buddhism being that suffering exists, suffering arises. We can see this is the cause of suffering. This is what leads to suffering. This is what leads to the end of suffering. And in that process, that that realizing that things arise and pass away, and that we 
have some effect on whether we choose the rising of suffering or the ending of suffering. And that judgment is the place that very often we go astray. And instead of saying, uh, this is what gives rise to suffering and then stopping, vowing not to do that again. We get lost in establishing blame for, for what has happened by ourselves or others. And we get lost in the story and we forget to just look at, ah, this gives rise to suffering, this ends suffering. When, when the Buddha was instructing his son, who had done some horrible thing, he turned over a monk's bowl. And um, so the monk didn't get to eat that day. And instead of castigating his son and telling him how wrong it was, he said, you know, Rahua, this is it. This is all of it. Before, during, and after any action, think, does, is this causing suffering for me, for you, for either of us? If it's causing suffering, stop. If it's not causing suffering, cultivate it. This is Buddhism and requires seeing really clearly. So I'm not sure exactly what I was thinking at the time, Leila, but I hope that answers your question. That's how I relate to it now. Thank you, Maria. Uh, also, if people want to uh, raise their hand in Zoom, um, please go. feel free to do so, or you can post your question in chat. Uh, kind of like a follow-on question that happened in uh, uh, YouTube was, how does one see clearly? And that was from Marlene. Yeah, yeah. So the seeing clearly has to do with not taking the first piece of information you get, like that person hurt me by running over in front of me in their car, by tearing in front of me, but to say, if I let go of that string of that story, what else is true now? And so it's a process of just saying, well, I'm, I'm a little scared and noticing that shakiness Noticing that shakiness and not causing that, calling that shakiness more about anger. Well, yes, I'm shaking in anger. No, I'm shaking. I'm just shaking. What does that, does that have to signify what the mind automatically goes to? So it's a process of over time learning one's mind habits. What does my mind do when I get shook? Last night I was sitting uh, having dinner with our family and the, the uh, dog was under the table and I didn't realize she'd crawled over close to my chair and, and suddenly she stretched and the, her claw hit the side of my foot, the, my sandaled foot. And I leapt up and everybody said, what's wrong? And I said, I didn't leap up, but I jerked up and people said, what's wrong? I said, Oh, it's nothing. I was just startled. Okay. Never underestimate. If you're startled, you're startled. It doesn't have to mean, oh, that crummy dog shouldn't be under the table. Just notice, oh, I'm startled. That's how you get to, don't be in a hurry to name something. Naming something is very useful in meditation, but not so much if you're just trying to see what else is here. Because whatever you name something creates a story. So it just leaves space. Thank you.
Thank you. And you can go ahead and unmute yourself. Hi, Anne. Hello, Maria. Hello, everybody. I'm going to be a cheerleader for Maria because I just thought this week was terrific. And secondly, that the lines that did you say they were from Mr. Goldstein? Uh, um, the, so you told me those lines about 10 years ago. And I have to say it was an amazing turning point for me. And it has opened up a whole world of looking at my you know, conditioning as part of my responsibility, as opposed to selfing myself. Um, and I just hi, and I memorized them at the time you said them to me. And I use them almost every day to just ground me. So I recommend them really highly to everybody. I, it's, it's, it's just, it just brings you right back to the essence of this moment. And it does really help with that tendency to blame that because you're seeing conditioning is part of it and anyway blah blah so thank you maria for everything and i just i'm a cheerleader for that those lines that you passed on thank you came from youtube asked maria are there any suggestions for working with tight areas in one's body e.g tightness around the heart area which occurs with me often Mm. So, um, so the natural thing is to want that tightness to go away. I would want it to go away. And when I notice that tightness, rather than trying to think of ways to ease it, I focus on the tightness as the the core of the rawness in me. This is the place where, that that I feel the physical play, pain of whatever my emotional state is. And in seeing that, I empathize with myself. I see it oh, you're trying so hard. And in that, in that shift to, oh, I see you're trying so hard, there is a, a shift to compassion for oneself. And that being able to empathize and see clearly, oh, that's painful. Not, not pitying, but, oh, I see that. I see that in you. Softens the heart. It isn't in that moment going to just change everything, but it is a gradual seeing. Oh, there's there's tightness here. It is. Does it feel like a crushing tightness? Does it feel like a stretched tightness? Does it? Can I see something else about this tightness other than it's tight? Does it feel protective? Does it feel overextended? Does it feel camouflaged? Does it feel like it's hidden from me? I was very aware at one time, I, I had, the, the, the reason I talk so much about an open heart is that when I first began meditating, I became very aware of how protected my heart was. And I 
literally imagined it with a brick wall and iron gates in front of it. It was, it was a formidable, formidable structure. And first the gates kind of opened a little bit, but the wall was still there. That brick wall was still there. And then one day it wasn't there anymore. But it's a gradual crumbling. So so I don't know the nature of the of the uh the tightness in your heart. But never underestimate that some of the tightness can come from over efforting and trying to break it loose. And sometimes what's required is to just say, may the tightness in my heart relax. And then you'll notice sometime. uh, Yeah, so one of the breakthroughs for me was suddenly recalling that when my dog had cancer and had they they just sold her back up and they tried to give her some some drug to ease her pain. And she had a uh, uh, the uh, opposite reaction to it. She became very agitated. And I went and I climbed into the cage with her. And I thought anybody that will climb into a dog cage to comfort the, the dog is not heartless. So I couldn't see it for myself, but I could see it in another way. So, so don't give up on yourself. The way to work on it is to befriend yourself. Befriend yourself. Be your own grandma. Thank you. Katrin, you can go ahead and unmute. Hi, Maria. Thank you. It's been so helpful this week. I'm really, really grateful. Um, I want to just name what I find to be the particular challenge of like chronic conditions that feel like they lead to a lot of suffering. Like for myself, I'm on day eight of a migraine Mm. and day, and I live with chronic pain all the time, but then sometimes it, it flares and on, you know, day two, I'm like, okay, equanimity. Okay. Let me observe. But there is something that happens as for me, um, as the, as the, these conditions that are very painful continue that something, it gets harder, it gets tiring, these intentions get harder to hold, the perspective, clear perspective gets harder to hold. And at the same time, it gets easier to start to blame myself for the conditions. Am I air? What have I been doing that has caused this karma, which is awful? Um, And I'm speaking this because I think many of us live with, um, causes and condition or conditions or experiences that don't just change. And it's very easy, I think, for the mind to be like, okay, do I believe in impermanence when it's been 30 years of intense pain? Um, So, and then starting to be like, well, then it must be my fault that I can't just keep continually coming to the present moment and seeing it afresh when it seems so repetitive. So I, I know like compassion, I know the like basic pr- approaches here. It's just hard and um, any, any sort of support and boosting um, for those of us in similar situations, I would be grateful for. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. For, I'm sorry for all your suffering. Really. The, the, uh, 
um, Buddhism is not a bolster against pain, only the additional thing of blaming ourselves for that pain. So, um, so, so once again, I think that the, the refuge, the, the place of refuge is to befriend oneself and to realize that this, this is painful. And unlike other instructions around mindfulness, it is not useful to concentrate on that pain. It's not useful. It is just there. It's rather like uh, I ate in a restaurant the other night and walked in and the noise was so loud. All the surfaces were hard and it was so loud. It just hurt my ears. And after about 10 minutes, I was no longer noticing. It was still loud, but I just wasn't my awareness had kind of moved on. Whereas if I had focused on that loudness, it never would have improved. It would always have been very, 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 very loud. Now that's not the same thing as the pain from a migraine, which I understand is overwhelming or can be overwhelming. And so when one is faced with overwhelming isness, this is what's true in this moment. The condition is overwhelming. To, to admit to oneself, this is overwhelming. And despite everything, I am still here. There's a sort of reinforcement of the confidence that comes from saying, I am still here. Here I am. With all the things that are true, it may feel like this is killing me, but it hasn't. I'm here. I'm here. Wounded, weary. And undaunted by that woundedness and that weariness. We do this in the presence of grief. We do this in the presence of of catastrophe, all sorts of catastrophes that happen in life. And when we feel like there's nobody else to blame, it must be my fault that I can't overcome this. Existence is not about overcoming anything, but to to just be here and say, ah, damn, that hurts. And then to let that go, not to stay with that story, not to stay with one's awareness in that place. It's not, I'm not saying to divert one's attention, but merely then to notice something else, to light a candle to look outside and see something that pleases you and know that that's here too, not instead of, too. There are uh, some recordings on audio dharma on how to deal with chronic pain. And those teachers are, are maybe more useful to you than I am. But so, you know, you, you can go, you can go to audio, click on audio Dharma and you can get, you can search by topic or you can search by teacher. You know, so if you went there, you could go to the menu for teachers and you'd get, you know, all of the things. If you put in my name, you get all of the things that I've recorded over the last 15 plus years. So there's lots of resources there that you might find useful. And, uh, Inez Friedman has done a lot of uh, really lovely things on the subject of pain. Thank you so much.
think Teresa, you can unmute. Hi, Teresa. Hi, Maria. Um, I have a quick question. Yesterday you said that there were some openings on the group um, sessions. Yeah. And I went there after um, yesterday and um, there was nothing left. And I w- I... I'm having trouble getting to that site, the genius genius signup site mm-hmm. through IMC. I can mm. do the, the individual ones, but I, I'm having trouble finding the group one. But yesterday I found it, except there wasn't any more slots left. No, they went very quickly. Okay. Um, so I used to do more sessions, but uh, it was... <laughs> oh. I've, I've, I've cut back a little bit on the number of sessions. So, okay. Uh, well, don't they open up each month? Oh, and the other thing they do, they open up, uh, they're on a rotating basis. So they, right now I've set them for, to three weeks in advance because I'm, I'm, I used to do three a week and now I'm doing just one extra uh, every other week. So oh. down on the number that are available. So I might okay. change that in the future, but that's how it is right now. I'm quite busy with that. Half is fine. Um, okay. All um, right. So, so and, and yeah. And, and the way to get to those though is through IMC. There is, there must be a link in IMC to those signups. Yes, there is. Yeah. Okay. And um, the other thing I would say is check back because people Often, when I mentioned that there were slots, the, the this Saturday's group was full, and then two two people canceled. And yeah. so, you know, shortly before, sometimes those those positions open up. Okay, thank you. So, Roni. Thank you, Maria. Um, I, I think I want to clarify something in my mind, which I'm a little confused by. When I am struggling with judgment or inability to forgive, to find that equanimity, it's mighty hard. And I think usually I would end up going to some form of compassion practice to offer myself that. Um, I, I Maybe in my mind right now, I'm not sure where to look at that point to look for equanimity when I'm so stuck in my pattern. Can you offer some advice on that? So, um, so, on the, on the practice of, on say, do loving kindness practice, meta practice, uh, it, it can be useful to use it to soften your heart, not, not to sort of repair what's going on, but as a, as when you, when you find rigidity being established, I can't let go of that. I just can't let go of that. Then sometimes a meta practice will just for yourself, not for others, just for yourself, wishing yourself well. Wishing yourself well will will do that little shift I mentioned before, where you can shift from from the, all that heavy effort to just really trying. And, and there's a there's a kind of letting go and a little relaxation of breath. the The thing is, when in the Dhammapada, where, where the phrases I read yesterday about a hatred only ends by non-hatred that that's usually often has been translated or uh, 
hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone does hatred end. But we don't have to go so far as to love what's causing us pain and suffering. We just have to stop hating. And so it's the letting go of the story. So every time I hear myself justifying, well, yeah, I'm mad because, or I hear myself say, oh, you always do, or any of those triggering things that are the messages in my brain, I, I say, I, I relax that story. I'm not going to keep telling that story. Sometimes I stop in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> it's, so, it's so familiar to me. And, and it's repeating in my head. I'll stop in the middle of the sentence and just say, I don't have to say that. I know the source of that pain. I don't have to tell myself about it. So that it it steps down from both having to defend how I feel, the rigidity I feel, to saying, this is this is where it is. And to and to rest in even I wish I could let go of it. To dis- there's there's a place where one finds refuge in resting in one's good intentions. It's not giving up. It's not saying it's okay. It's not excusing, but it's it's seeing very clearly how how much one wishes to be free of the the curse of not being able to lay it down. Now, yesterday, Susie reacted to my saying, refusing to let go of, because she'd never heard me say that before. It's recognizing that sometimes that harm that we have received has become a familiar partner and feels somehow right. It's that making it part of me. And the refusal is not overt or conscious. It's just Oh yeah, just what I was expecting. The the familiarity of a chronic issue, the feeling how familiar it is, is not your friend. You have to notice, oh, I'm becoming I'm becoming used to this. Has this become a habit? As opposed to how I'm reacting to what's happening right now. So the closer you can get to just what's happening now, the closer you can get to seeing things clearly and to realize that that what you think about it, the opinion you have about what's happening is not what's happening now. What's happening now is the pain of that opinion. Does that help? Kind of consider it. Just see if that opens anything for you. Hey, Maria. Well, thank you for your teachings this week. I think that's pretty much everything, all the questions and raised hands. So um, thank you very much. Thank you, everyone.